The following audio is from Citizens Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. If you're interested in getting involved with our family, visit citizenscharlotte.com connect. Our teaching text this evening comes from Luke 10, 25 through 37. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, good evening. Uh, if you do have a Bible or a phone, go ahead and get there to Luke chapter 10 if you're not there already. Uh, it's good to be with you tonight. If you haven't met before, uh, my name is Tim. I serve as the pastor here. Uh, before I pray and we get into God's Word, I just want to take a minute to say uh, I'm really, really proud of you guys as a, a church and as a church family. Um, I uh, know that it's a weird time to plan a church, and it's a, it's a weird time to get started and to figure all of this out. Um, none of this is uh, expected or precedented in a lot of ways, um, and you guys have just been really, really gracious, and you have taken it seriously, uh, the call that we have uh, put forward for you guys uh, to dwell in unity and to dwell uh, in kindness and in humility towards one another, and I know that it's... Um, yeah, it's a tough thing because I know we all have opinions and we all have preferences and we all have uh, viewpoints when it comes to COVID and mass, et cetera, et cetera. And so I just want to say thank you. You guys have, have genuinely been gracious and kind uh, this week. Uh, I sent, we sent the message out uh, on social media and all that kind of stuff, and uh, I got nothing back but encouragement. So if you guys are complaining, you're not complaining to me. So thank you. Um, <laughs> But no, genuinely, uh, you guys have, have just been really mature. And so I just appreciate that. Uh, that's, that's evidence of the spirit in you. Um, yeah, let me pray for us. And then we'll get into Luke chapter 10 and we'll talk about everything we're talking about. God, thank you uh, for who you are. God, thank you for uh, the chance to gather with your people. I thank you for your son, Jesus, and his teachings, his parables, his stories, his life. One of the most beautiful picture of sacrificial love. And we're grateful. God, would you help us as we look at your word tonight? God, would you speak? God, would you move? God, would you, uh, by the power of your spirit, shape our hearts, mold us, change us, all of that? Lord, we do uh, want to pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ in Afghanistan, God, and the stuff that they uh, are walking through, and the fear, the uncertainty, the doubt. Lord, would you be near to them? Kindness peace and grace. We love you. Help us. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, last week we kicked off our series uh, called uh, The Fruit of the Spirit in the time of, or in a time of the flesh. And we talked about this big idea from Galatians 5, that there are two operating systems dwelling within believers. That there's the flesh, uh, what the Bible calls our sin nature, which is shaping us and pulling us away from God. Our flesh wants to dwell independently from God, wants to rebel against him. And then we also talked about that if you become a Christian, if you put your faith in Jesus, he also gives you the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity, to dwell within you, to pull you and shape you towards God, towards Christ's likeness, towards becoming more and more like Jesus as you live out your discipleship to him. And we said over the next nine weeks, we're going to emphasize and talk about these different smaller battles that are a part of this larger war of flesh versus spirit. And so today, we're going to kick off the first one, talking about love in a time of selfishness. Love in a time of selfishness. Love is the very first part of the fruit of the Spirit that Paul gets into in Galatians 5. It's the very first line. He says, the fruit of the Spirit is love. And so we're going to talk about love in a time of selfishness. Well, let's start before we get into Luke 10 and talk about love by first talking about selfishness. So if you look at the list of the works of the flesh that we talked about last week from Galatians 5, almost all of them at the core have something to do with a focus on the self. The CSB translation would translate Galatians 5, 19 through 21 this way. It says, the works of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, moral impurity, promiscuity, idolatry, sorcery, hatreds, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and anything similar. I mean, just take a minute and look at that list, right? Sexual immorality, hatred, jealousy, envy, selfish ambition, all of these have to do with a focus on and an elevation of the self. Selfishness is a mark of the flesh. The flesh causes us to turn inwards on ourselves and focus on me. What do I want? What do I need? What are my preferences? What are my desires? How am I doing rather than turning upwards towards God and outwards towards our neighbor? The flesh causes us to turn inward on ourselves. This is why uh, early church father, St. Augustine, and then later the reformer Martin Luther, instead of calling humanity homo sapiens, or people of wisdom, they instead would refer to man as homo incurvatus. It's a Latin phrase which means man or humanity turned in on himself. Luther said you can define all sin as man turning towards himself rather than turning towards God and towards others. He even wrote in his lecture on Romans, he says, our nature by the corruption of the first sin so deeply curved in on itself that it fails to realize that it so wickedly, curvedly, and viciously seeks all things, even God for its own sake. Because of our sin, our flesh, our natural bent is inwards. It's towards selfishness. I mean, I just think about a typical day for me. This is one of those sermons. You preach some sermons out of a place of maturity and the Lord's grown some stuff and you preach some out of a place of repentance. And I'm preaching this one deeply out of a place of repentance. Just thinking about this last week and just going about my day. The first thought I have when I wake up in the morning is about me, right? My alarm goes off. I, I sit up in bed or I snooze it a couple times and then I sit up in bed. And my first thought is, what am I doing today? What do I want today? 
What do I have in store? What, what do I have to live through? How am I feeling? How am I doing? How am I thinking about and feeling about my day? And then as I go about my day, every thought and every interaction I have is about me. It's through the filter of me, a conversation I have. Even if postured wise, I'm trying to care and love for someone else, I'm still thinking questions in the back of my mind, like how am I coming across? How am I doing? Do they, do they feel cared for by me? Do they feel like I have the right wisdom to say? Do I have the right thing to do? I step into a room and my first thought is, how do I look? How am I postured? Do people, are, are they excited that I'm here? Are they glad that I'm in the space? Like every thought I have throughout the day is about me. But here's the even more dangerous part of it is it's not like I wake up every morning going, you know what I want to do today? I want to be selfish. Like I don't wake up, right? I'm like, okay, yes, today is about me. I can't wait to make everything I do about me. I would say most of us, if not all of us in the room, don't have that thought, right? We don't wake up. First thing we think about in the morning is, you know what? I can't wait to make today all about me. Can't wait to be selfish. I would say most people in the world probably don't do that. There's a few exceptions, but most of us don't. It's just the natural bent of our sin nature and our flesh to live a life and have a mindset of it is all about me. And this part of it is because of the flesh, but I would also argue part of it is because we live in a culture that not only points us and pushes us that way, but also celebrates a focus on self. Let's talk about our culture for a second, right? As Americans in the modern West, we live in a society built on rewarding to and emphasizing the success of the individual. That's the whole argument of a democratic capitalistic society, right? That if you seek your flourishing and I seek my flourishing, that if we both care most about ourselves, that everyone else will be okay. That's what we need in society to thrive is you care about you. I'm going to care about me. We're going to seek our own flourishing and then everything else will be Good. This idea is actually relatively unique in human history. So with a few uh, sporadic exceptions, overwhelmingly civilizations throughout human history have been bent not towards an elevation of self, but an elevation of the community, of the common good. And this was different with America. This was different in the founding of our nation and the ideals that it was birthed out of. If you don't take my word for it, because I'm a pastor, not a, a political philosopher, listen to Patrick Deneen. He's a professor of political philosophy at Notre Dame. This is how he says it. He says, what was new in the development of America is that the default basis for evaluating institutions, society, affiliations, memberships, and even personal relationships became dominated by considerations of individual choice based on the calculation of individual self-interest and without broader consideration of the impact of one's choices upon the community, one's obligations to the created order, and ultimately to God. What Deneen is saying there is what was new in the development of our nation is that first and foremost, we prioritized and emphasized what is good for the self, what is good for us as individuals. We're, we're taught to and rewarded for curving inward the very thing that our flesh wants to do. Now, if that feels too broad or too theoretical, let me show you how this shows up in your life. Your favorite TV show, your favorite movie, a conversation with a friend over lunch or coffee. This, I think no phrase in our society better sums this up than the phrase, you do you. You do you. Right? This kind of conversation ender, right? You can't argue after someone says that. Oh, you want to quit your job and move overseas and with no plan to make money and no plan for where you're going to stay and no friendships. You do you. Oh, you want to date that person who's awful and horrible for you and nobody thinks is a good idea for you to date. You do you. 
Maybe you've heard it other ways, like uh, you have to do what's best for you. Or the reverse, well, you know, I'm just doing me. Or I can't judge them if it makes them happy. Or to each his own. Or the ever popular Disney mantra, follow your heart. I read an article this week uh, from the New York Times written by a novelist named Colson Whitehead, and the title of the article was so perfect. He named the article, How You Do You Perfectly Captures Our Narcissistic Culture. This is what he said. He said, in a world where the selfie has become our dominant art form, phrases like you do you and its tribe provide a philosophical scaffolding for our ever-evolving, ever-more-complicated narcissism. He says, we have to have phrases that don't really mean anything and that just shut down conversations like you do you in order to foster and build up our culture of narcissism. Our culture of life is about me and only me. And if you're going to get in my way of what I want and what I am going after, then you got to get out because I'm about me. Paul says the works of the flesh are evident, selfish ambition. So our culture is pulling us away. The time we live in is pulling us away and towards selfishness. Our flesh is pulling us towards selfishness, and yet selfishness is not of the Spirit of God. It's not the way of Jesus. The way of Jesus is love. So we have to ask the question, what does love look like in a time of selfishness? And with that, let's look at Luke chapter 10. Luke 10, this is one of Jesus' more famous parables called the Good Samaritan. Uh, let's, Let's walk through it together. Verse 25, Luke 10. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, a lawyer uh, is not like you would think of like America, like the show Suits or something like that. It's not uh, American, fancy Manhattan type of lawyer or something like that. Lawyer here is a scholar. It's someone who would have studied the Old Testament law and been the most well-versed person in society on the Mosaic law. So he's Not a fool. He knows what he's talking about when it comes to this question. And he puts Jesus to the test. He says, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Which is the question that all of us at our core at some level are asking. Verse 26, Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Classic Jesus. I'm not going to answer your question. I'm going to ask you a question. You're supposed to be the lawyer. You're supposed to be the scholar. How do you read it? The man answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. So the man quotes uh, Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19, and it's these two uh, key commandments in the law of God, that you would love God and you would love your neighbor. Jesus himself, in the Gospel of Matthew, is approached and asked this question about the greatest commandments. And he says, the first is that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. So the man pulls on that. He says, this is what I have to do in order to inherit eternal life. I have to love God fully, and I have to love my neighbor. Notice what Jesus says, verse 28. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. All right, we have to pause there. Is Jesus affirming a workspace salvation, right? The guy just asked, hey, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, what do you think? The man says, love God and love my neighbor. And Jesus says, you're right. If you do that, you'll have eternal life. Well, what's happening there? Well, what Jesus is saying is actually congruent with the rest of the scriptures. Because the rest of the scriptures would agree with Jesus here that if you can follow the commands of God perfectly, then you can have life with God forever in his kingdom. Here's the problem. None of us can, right? 
because of sin entering into the world, because of the flesh, we cannot follow God's law perfectly. We can't do it. None of us will love God perfectly, and none of us will love those around us perfectly. We will fail at this. And so Jesus says, yeah, if you can do this, you will live. But here's the thing, none of us can. That's why we need a savior. That's why we need someone who came into the world, who fulfilled the law, who lived the law perfectly, and yet took our lawlessness and sin upon himself, who went to the cross, who took the punishment of God on our behalf and now gives us his law fulfillment, gives us his righteousness. That's the good news of the gospel. Verse 29, but he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? The man's doing here is he's trying to, says he's trying to justify himself. He's trying to get Jesus. He's hoping to shrink the requirement a little bit. Right? So if I have to love God and love my neighbor, then hopefully if he tells me who my neighbor is, that'll totally exclude one group of people and it'll kind of lessen the blow a little bit and then I can be good with God. It's not Jesus' answer. Instead, Jesus is going to tell a story, this beautiful parable that's going to give us a picture of what true love of the Spirit looks like. Let's read the whole thing and then I'll, I'll pull some stuff out for us. Luke 10. Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. When he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him. Whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. There's four distinct markers I want us to see from this story about love. We'll work through them fairly quickly. Four markers of the love of the fruit of the Spirit. Number one, love necessitates action. Love necessitates action. The first two men to pass by this beaten, stripped, left-for-dead man on the side of the road were a priest and a Levite. These were the two highest-ranking religious officials in that culture. They would have known everything there was to know about a theology of love based on the Old Testament scriptures. They could have taught on and argued until they were blue in the face the inworkings and outworkings of God's theology of love. They could have argued about the root meaning of the Hebrew ahav and what it means to have godly love versus human love and how to put those practices out into workings. And yet notice they cross on the other side. When a tangible need is placed in front of them, they go the other way. And I think there's a solemn warning for us in that. We don't know all of the reasonings. Jesus doesn't go into that for why they cross to the other side. But I do think it's a warning for those of us who would claim spiritual maturity, and yet that maturity doesn't work itself out in practical love for those around us. It's deeply convicting even for me this week. So I'm studying Luke chapter 10, and I'm thinking about the four markers of love and love in a time of selfishness, and yet I'm well aware of bitterness and resentment and lack of forgiveness that I have in my heart towards some folks I need to forgive. It's deeply convicting for me as I think about the ins and outs of godly love and how to teach people to cultivate love and how to show you guys the scriptures on love as I'm wrestling with these theological concepts of love, and yet I know the selfishness in my own heart that doesn't make me want to serve those around me. It's really easy to know a lot about love 
and to say a lot about love, to not actually do anything practical with that love. It's easy for me, I don't know about you, to sit in community group, for somebody to say, hey, this is what's going on with me. This is where I'm struggling. This is, I need help. This is what's going on. And for me to say something like, hey, man, I'm going to be praying for you, then not actually pray or do any type of follow-up afterward. And that's selfishness. That's the flesh. That's my own selfishness and self-interest getting in the way of me actually taking my theology of love and practically working it out in actions and sacrifice for other people. That's a warning for us from this passage. 1 John 3.18 says it so clearly, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. I was even talking about this with Lindsay this morning. It's hard to preach on love because in a lot of ways, it's like, how do I tell you guys what if you've been around church for any amount of time, or even if you haven't, you know should be a marker of Christians. Love. It's easy to say, yeah, I know this stuff. It's so much harder to actually get it into our lives. Number two, love crosses to the other. Love necessitates action. Number two, love crosses to the other. This is a shocking story on, on a lot of different levels, but one of the most shocking parts is that it's a Samaritan who stops to help the man on the road. And here's why this is shocking. Jews and Samaritans hated each other. And this was not like disagreeing because they had a little bit of difference of opinion or like they're kind of beefing because one of them said something bad. Like this is deep rooted 750 plus years of hatred. This goes all the way back to 722 BC, where the northern kingdom of Israel, the capital city was Samaria, where the Samaritans lived. And the Assyrians, this foreign nation, conquered Samaria. And what happened was the Samaritans started intermarrying with these non-Jewish people. And as a result of them marrying these non-Jewish people, they started worshiping false gods. They started living life a totally different way outside of the law God had established for them. And so to put it bluntly, Jewish people were like, hey, Samaritans, they're impure sellouts. Like, we're just not going to have anything to do with them. And over time, this distaste, this distaste between Jews and Samaritans grew aggressive. Here's a few just interesting examples. So both Jewish and Samaritan priests, they would teach their people that the other person, the other side, was unclean, which means you couldn't do business with them. You couldn't be friends with them. You can't even be in the same room as them. If a Samaritan walked into a room and you were a Jewish person, you were supposed to leave. Another interesting example of this is that the worst insult that a Jew could use was to call someone a Samaritan. There's this really uh, kind of crazy story in John 8. Uh, the Pharisees get really, really upset with Jesus because he's teaching about the kingdom and telling them they're wrong. And their insult to him is they're like, well, you're a Samaritan. Burn. They hated each other. They had disdain for each other. And here Jesus is talking to a Jewish lawyer, a scholar of the Mosaic law. And he's like, hey, you know who stops? Not the priest or the Levite, the Samaritan. This says something to the sacrificial nature of love that we're called to as followers of Jesus. Because here's the deal. It's easy to love people that you like. Right? It's easy to love people who agree with you on everything who like what you like, who have similar interests, who have similar political viewpoints, who have similar ways of life, who have similar views on parenting, who have similar views on friendship. Like it's easy to love people who you're like, I just get along with them. And so I'm going to love those people. It's easy to love people who are like us. It's a whole different kind of sacrifice to love the other. Because the flesh doesn't love the other, right? The flesh doesn't love the difficult person. The flesh doesn't love the person who yelled at you or mistreated you or lied to you. The flesh, flesh doesn't love the person who keeps posting ridiculous things on Instagram that you're like, how are you posting that? The flesh doesn't love that person. They don't love the other. Let me ask you a question. 
to see if your love is crossing it to the other. Do all of your friends look like you, talk like you, like what you like, and agree with all your viewpoints? If so, you may not be doing a lot of crossing to the other kind of love. Jesus himself says it a few chapters earlier, Luke 6, he says, even non-Christians, even non-believers, they love people that like them. Like, that's not hard. Everybody can love somebody if they love you back. It's like, that's great. You're nice to me. I'll be nice to you. You scratch my back. I'll scratch your back. But he says it's different for Christians. Luke 6.35, he says, love your enemies. It's the fruit of the spirit kind of love. Love moves towards the other. Love moves towards those who wrong you and belittle you and hurt you and are frustrating to you and who you don't naturally gel with and who are awkward to you. Love says, go after those people. Cross to the other. That's number two, love goes to the other. Number three, love is willing to be interrupted with compassion. Love is willing to be interrupted with compassion. Verse 33, I'll read it again. It says, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. I love those two phrases. He saw him and then he had compassion. He's moved internally with love to help the man. You see, selfishness doesn't gel with compassion. Right? Because compassion means we're moved and motivated by the needs of others, while selfishness only moves and motivates us by our needs. Selfishness says, I'm going to get out of bed for what I want. I'm going to get in the car and go do the thing for what I want. But, but compassion says no for others, moved and motivated by the needs of those around us. Selfishness only has compassion for ourselves. It only justifies ourselves by our excuses, right? It's easy for us in compassion for ourselves, in mercy for ourselves to go, yeah, but I have a thousand excuses for why I did that thing. I'm so sorry I said that, but I got this excuse and this excuse and this excuse. I'm so sorry that I didn't do this thing you wanted, but I have this excuse and this excuse. And yet compassion doesn't look that for other people. It doesn't say, yeah, but I see you. I'm willing to hear your story. I'm willing to lay down my life for you. I'm willing to be interrupted for you. It says he sees him. He has compassion and he stops. A a key test for the fruit of love in our lives is how willing are you, how often are you willing to be inconvenienced for the good of someone else? Let me say that again. How often are you willing to be inconvenienced for the good of someone else? And as someone who lives and dies by a schedule, my answer is not very often. Because I love my schedule. Every Sunday morning, I sit down with Lindsay and we make a schedule. We make a plan. I don't want that plan to be interrupted. If you are in the schedule, I will love you in that moment. (laughs) It's a gut check for me. Love is willing to be interrupted. Love is willing to say, you know, I had my plans for the day. I had my kids' schedule for the day. I had my work thing for the day. But love is willing to be interrupted. Love is willing to say, you know what? I can have compassion for the need that is placed in front of me right now. And so my plans just aren't that important right now. And I'm willing to stop, and I'm willing to be there, and I'm willing to show up. I, I think this is one of the hidden blessings of community groups. Uh, community groups are forced inconvenience that helps you cultivate love in your life. Because we're being honest, community groups are not convenient to anybody, right? If you're in a group, it's not convenient. It's just not. Let's be honest, it's not convenient to, to give up a night. It's not convenient often to stay up later than you usually do, talking to myself. It's not convenient to keep your kids up later than they usually are. It's not convenient to be forced into community with people that maybe you wouldn't be friends with outside of Jesus, that maybe you don't gel with. Maybe you're in a different life stage. Maybe you don't have the same interests. Maybe they keep stepping on your toes with their opinions and their viewpoints and their hot takes. And it's like, this is really hard and inconveniencing me all the time. Group, I love you. 
It's hard, right? It's an inconvenience, right? But it pushes on us and it helps us cultivate love in our life because what happens is they schedule the hangout at the place and the activity you have no interest in at the time that doesn't work for you. And it's a chance for you to go, you know what? I can be selfish. I can give into the flesh or I can sacrifice and let the spirit cultivate love by me showing up even when I don't want to and really probably can't, but I'm gonna rearrange some stuff to be there. So what happens is when you're sitting in group and somebody says that thing where you're like, I wish they wouldn't have said that thing. And everything in you is like, you know what? I just don't gel with these people, so I'm going to bail. Like they're just, we don't see eye to eye and they're just frustrating and it's hard for me to want to show up and it's hard for me to love them. We just don't get along and they just don't see things the way I see things and they just can't really, I just, I'm going to bail. And love forces us to go, you know what? I'm going to die to myself. I'm going to show up. I'm going to sacrifice, and the Spirit's going to use that to shape me more and more into the image of Christ. That's number three. Number four, love sacrifices at great cost to itself. Love sacrifices at great cost to itself. Verse 33, he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal animal, and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I'll repay you when I come back. Christian love is self-sacrificing. The Samaritan doesn't gain anything by taking care of this man. If anything, he puts himself at a risk. This is a great cost to the Samaritan. Number one, he stops. This easily could be a trap. This easily could be someone, is he faking it? Is he, you know, is this something that they left him there and they're hiding out and they're now going to attack me? Like it's a dangerous thing for him to stop in the middle of this road and expose himself to his own trouble and danger. And then he loads him up. He takes him to the inn. He rearranges his plans. He comes back the next day to check on the man again. He pays two denarii, which is two days worth of wages. And then he's like, hey, if it's more, I'll give you even more. He just sacrifices and sacrifices and sacrifices. And this is Christian love. Christian love is sacrificial. Christian love doesn't bail when it gets tough. Christian love doesn't bail when it starts to hurt. Christ-like love doesn't bounce when it starts to cost us something. As Christians, we don't walk the line where we go, I'm going to love you, I'm going to love you, I'm going to love you, until that moment where it gets a little bit dangerous and a little bit uncertain and a little bit where it starts costing me and then I'm out. Christ-like love goes the extra mile. We're willing to be hurt. You can take this idea and you can apply it in a number of different ways, but one of the main ways I see this the most in my life and those around me is the way we are unwilling to sacrificially love when our relationships start to hurt. And I'm not talking about legitimate cases of abuse, okay? I'm not talking about that. So if you're in that, I'm so, so sorry. Please come talk to me. Talk to your community group leader. Talk to a trusted Christian friend. Talk to somebody. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the, uh, you offended me and hurt me and said something that messed up my feelings a little bit, and so I'm just out. I'm out of the relationship. I can't do that anymore. I can't be your friend anymore. You said that thing. I didn't really like it. You posted that thing, and I didn't really like it. You were talking about me, and you didn't know it, but I'm offended, and so now I'm not going to, I'm just going to ghost. I'm not going to address you. I'm not going to talk about it. We just give up on each other. We're like, you know what? I'm going to love those around me, but not in a way that I'm ever going to be hurt. See how anti-Jesus that is? Jesus' love for us necessitated that he got hurt. His love necessitated that he went to the cross. And we have bought in to the lie of the overemphasis and overapplication of boundaries. 
Now I'm for good, healthy boundaries. I'm for good boundaries and friendships and when it's appropriate and all of that. But here's what we do. We baptize our relational selfishness in the language of boundaries and protecting our mental health. And it's off. And we say, hey, if you're ever going to offend me, if you're ever going to hurt me, if you're ever going to say something that, ruin, that is just a little bit mean to me, then I can't be your friend. And that's not what Christ loved us. Christ loves sacrifices. He says, no, I'm going to show up and I'm going to forgive and I'm going to show up again and I'm going to forgive again and I'm going to show up again and I'm going to forgive again. Again, I'm not talking about real cases of abuse. I'm not talking about that. If that's you, please come talk to me. Don't mishear what I'm saying. That's the four. Galatians 5.22. Let me kind of lead us home. Galatians 5.22. Paul says, the fruit of the Spirit is love. Active, compassionate, crossing to the other, willing to be interrupted at great cost to ourselves, love. That's how Paul begins the list in Galatians 5. He says, the fruit of the Spirit is love. And most scholars argue that he starts with that because love shapes the other eight parts of the fruit that we're going to see. So love looks like kindness. Love looks like goodness. Love looks like peace. Love looks like patience. One scholar says, if you want to know how you're doing loving people, look at the other eight and test yourself on those parts. You'll know if you're loving This is our call as followers of Jesus. To become like Jesus, we must learn deep sacrificial love. That's how this part of Luke 10 ends, 36. It says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? The man said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Jesus turns the original question from who is my neighbor to what kind of neighbor are you? He says, go and do likewise. Church, the call is simple. Go and do likewise. Go and love. The first and primary outworking of us becoming like Jesus is love. Two greatest commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And so we need self-giving love where we say, what do you need from what I have? What do you need? How can I help? How can I step in? What do you need from me? I'm going to resist the pull to turn inward, and I'm going to go outward towards God and towards others. Self-sacrificing love. We say, you're, you're good over my self-protection. Your interests above my own, your needs above my own. Love that dares to look a little bit crazy to the outside world because of how sacrificial it is for others. And self-emptying love. I'm willing to be hurt for this. I'm willing to make my life tougher to love you. This is what we're called to as believers. Not sentimental feelings of love, not good ideas, not good intentions. Real, sacrificial, down-to-earth, encouraging, providing for, caring, helping, sacrificing, and supporting type of love. Here's the beauty of the gospel. That was Christ's love for you. That was Christ's love for me. Right? Like think, Think about the four things that we just talked about, right? Think about how Jesus is the true and better picture of all of them. Because here's the deal. In the story Jesus tells in Luke 10, we get glimpses of a much more beautiful story that Jesus lives. He's the true and better and good Samaritan, right? Jesus loved in action. He took on flesh. He came to earth. He left the right hand of the Father to enter into humanity. Jesus crosses to the other. We were the other. We were the other from God. We were his enemies. We didn't want him. We didn't want God. We didn't want Jesus. And yet Jesus came after us. Jesus had compassion on us. 
right? For God so loved the world. Jesus' life and death were incredible acts of compassion and love, and Jesus sacrificed at great cost to himself. He died the death we and our sins deserved. He took the wrath of God that should have been poured out on us upon himself. He gave up his life so that we could be made right with God. And he rose again from the grave victorious. And it's this Jesus who loved us, who saves us, and who then changes our hearts to then go out and love other people. Because here's the deal. It's really easy to read Luke chapter 10. It's really easy to look at this story and go, all right, so the call is for me to be the good Samaritan. And in one way, you'd be right. Jesus says, go and do likewise. In one way, you'd be right. Well, the call this week is to go and do likewise, to go and love in this beautiful picture that we have of love. But here's the deal. In the story and kingdom of God, you are not the good Samaritan. You are the beat up man on the road. And I am the beat up man on the road. And Jesus is the one who goes and who stops and who sees and who has compassion and sacrifices at great cost to himself so that we could be healed and cleansed and set free and forgiven and made right with God. Not because of what we've done. We were beat up, left for dead on the side of the road. And Jesus comes and goes, what help do you need? I'm going to do all of it. I'm going to do all of it. Why do we receive that? We receive it. That's it. Well, I got to I got to put myself on the donkey. No, you just receive it. Jesus lifts you, puts you on the donkey. He takes you to the inn. He pays the penalty. He pays the fee. He makes us right with God. He does all of it. It's the beauty and the good news of the gospel is that the call to love comes after the fact that we are loved. Right? Or Jesus says, go and do likewise comes after the fact that he first said, because I have loved you. It's the whole book of 1 John right? We know love. We love because he first loved us and laid down his life for us. So this week, we're going to cultivate love. It's the first way we become like Jesus. We look at his love and we cultivate love. Let me talk about how we're going to do this. We said this last week, it's going to be a common refrain. In order for us to become like Jesus, for love in a time of selfishness, we got to do some grit and we got to rely on the grace of God. Grit, we got to do some stuff. We have in your bulletin a practice guide on love. These are going to be in your bulletin every week. They're also going to be online on our series page, so you can grab them on there as well. And it's going to be two practices every week that help us cultivate this particular part of the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. And so there's going to be some grit. You're going to have to do the practices. If you want this series to be meaningful and to, the Spirit to do something in your life, you got to put in some grit. you got to put in some work, like a garden, right? you got to cultivate and you got to tend to it. And then we're going to be reliant on the grace of God. That he would shape us, the power of his Holy Spirit would, would move us and shape us. So real quick, let me just look at those practices with you. Uh, the first is to abide. I just said this, right? We wake up every morning and our first thought is us. We go about our day and our first, every thought, us, me, me. What do I want? What do I need? What do I want? What do I need? And abiding is a chance for us to recenter our hearts and minds on the love of God. And so there's passages on here for each weekday, Monday through Friday, that just talks about the love of God for you. And so I would encourage you each morning, take 10 minutes, five minutes, 15 minutes, whatever you can carve out and get. If you got to wake up a few minutes earlier, uh, do it and just get with these passages. Read them a couple times. Pray, meditate, think about these, and let the Spirit move and push the love of Christ into your heart, because that is what's going to compel you out into love for others. And then practice number two is the sacrifice, right? We're not just going to talk about love this week. We're not just going to be sit down in our groups and go, what can we do to love? We're actually going to do some stuff. We're actually going to practically love in action, in deed. And so here's just some ideas on practice two to get you started. Uh, I would encourage all of us, especially if you are a member of this church, to, to do one sacrificial practice of love this week for somebody else. And there are some examples on there. Um, 
use creativity, pray, see what the Spirit uh, tells you to do. But I want to give you some examples. Let me pray for us, and then the band can come up, and we can continue worshiping together. God, thank you uh, for who you are. God, thanks for Jesus on the cross. God, thank you for your love for us. God, I think about the fact that your word says it's your kindness that leads us to repentance, Lord. And so I just want to praise you, the God, that in your kindness, in your love, you are shaping us and molding us through your spirit more and more into the image of Christ. And I pray even this week, even tonight, as we contemplate and think about Luke chapter 10, as we think about the love of Christ on our behalf, that he, that you sought us when we were your enemy, that you sought us when we were in rebellion against you, God, that that would compel us and motivate us and change us, that we would then respond in love for you and love for those around us. God, I pray we will not love in talk, we will not just love in theology, but we will love in action this week. God, help me. God, I need, I need your spirit in this. God, I'm, I'm well aware of my own selfishness, my own selfish desires and self-interest, my own control over my schedule and my time and my money and my comfort. God, would you convict me? Would you shape me? God, would you convict all of us where we need to be convicted? God, thanks for Jesus. His overwhelming, unimaginable, unfathomable love for us. God, you've made a way for us to know you. God, we love you. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.